Hey, Amanda, remember that time one of the world's greatest classical pianists was also one of the world's greatest civil rights leaders? time and historical podcast i'm your host amanda webb and i'm your host anna webb and this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out about all of their favorite moments in history and today we're continuing black history month yay yay we're gonna talk about nina simone excellent um before we do that would you like a drink update of course Got a little bit of a wild card today. I'm having a smoothie. Ooh, I could mm. see you were sipping on something before we got started, but I could not figure out what it was. I'm just all about health and also wellness. Nice. So I made a smoothie today. I'm not. I just, it just sounded good. Nice. I'm drinking water. <laughs> because you're also about health and, or, health and, and also wellness. wellness. Wellness? What? Wow. Wow. <laughs> we're doing great. Yeah. It's going well already. Yep. <laughs> Buckle up. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit um out of it today. I don't know why. It's just like been a long week, I guess. Yeah, I get I don't it. Know. So we'll see how this goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but are you ready to talk about Nina Simone? Yes, I am. Okay. So Nina Simone is born Eunice Kathleen Wabin in uh. February of 1933, February 21st, in a town called Tryon, North Carolina. Her mother is Mary Kate Wayman, and she is a Methodist preacher and also a housemaid. Oh, my God. And her father is Reverend John Devon Wayman, um, and he is obviously also a preacher, and he's also a handyman. And I think I read that at one point he, like, owned a laundromat or something. Whoa, that's so cool that they're both preachers. Yeah. Um, And Eunice is the sixth of eight children. Too many. That's too many children. Um, And she begins playing piano by ear around the age of like three or four. Oh, wow. And she often plays at her mother's church or at the revivals that her mother takes her to. Sure. Um, and by the way, I'm getting some of this information from NinaSimone.com, but I'm getting a good bit of it from um, the documentary that Netflix did uh, in like 2015, I think, um, called What Happened, Miss Simone? And I highly recommend everybody watch it. It's really good. And her daughter was actually one of the executive producers. So it's like that's very awesome. accurate. You yeah. Know? Anyway, so um, she would play at these revivals. And then she would do, like, recitals with, you know, like, the church choir and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, And her first, like, classical recital is given at the age of 12. Um, And she later said that during this performance, um, her parents were asked to move to the back of the hall to make way for white people. And she refused to play until they were given their seats back. And she said that this was like the first time she could remember like feeling discriminated against, you know? Wow. That's um, wild. And she said it was like the thing that really like sparked her interest in like the civil rights movement. And sure. 
because she could she like felt that at such a young age mm-hmm. um so she starts studying with a music teacher um who is a white woman who just happened to see her in one of these like recitals um muriel Mazov. Mazenovich, I think is how you say her name. Um, and her teacher um, is really like she's she teaches her to be really disciplined in playing the piano. And she introduces her to all the like classical artists. So she gets really interested in Bach and Chopin and Brahms. Um, and I'm so sorry. Side note. <laughs> Every time I read the name Chopin, all I can think of is, do you remember in the classic Mary-Kate and Ashley film, um, it takes two when the identical strangers switch places and <laughs> the one who was at the camp goes to the fancy house and the girl who originally lived in the fancy house was like a really great pianist and her mean, soon-to-be evil stepmother is like, forcing her to play something and she goes normally i'd be delighted to play you something by choppin <laughs> i cannot read the name without thinking about that i have no memory of that even though i know what? i've seen I, i've seen that movie i just don't know that specific quote well of course you've seen that movie i'm obsessed with mary kate nashley yeah. and i watched everything they did a hundred times uh, yeah, she goes, normally I would be delighted to play you something by Choppin. <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, that's beside the point. So, um, so she gets really into the classical, you know, pianist composers. Um, and her teacher sets up a fund that she calls the Eunice Wayman Fund to eventually pay for her education. So she would, you know, give recitals and then they would take up a collection during them for this fund. Right. So the town, like, contributed to her education. I love that. So we're going to refer to her as Eunice until she takes on the stage name. So sorry if there's any confusion. (laughs) So Eunice attends Allen Allen High School for Girls in Asheville, North Carolina. Um. In the documentary, they play a bunch of clips from, uh, like, past interviews and stuff. And she says that she felt really isolated and kind of like she, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but kind of like she didn't have any friends because every time she'd interact with other, like, kids, they basically just want her to play piano, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't want to, like, be friends with her. Um, and then, of course, she, like, feels that that discrimination that's just all around her all the time. Right. And, Jim Crow is happening and, you know, she's very aware. Right. Um, but according to NinaSimone.com, she graduates as a, high, a valedictorian of her class. Nice. Um, and by this point, the community has raised enough money for a scholarship for her to study at Juilliard in New York City. That is excellent. Yeah. And she so she spends the summer of 1950 at Juilliard and she studies under the German pianist Carl Friedberg. Oh, wow. Yeah. And she they work on an audition um, because she wants to apply to the Curtis Institute of Music, which is in Philadelphia. So he helps her prepare for that. Her family moves to Philadelphia and then her application is denied. Oh, that's terrible. And she says it wasn't until like 
a little bit later, not a not a long time, but she says that she it takes her a minute to kind of realize like, oh, it's because I was the the black kid. Yeah. Although I read that like only three people out of like 70 some applicants got accepted. So there's also that. But let's, let's be, be honest. honest. Yeah. <laughs> She's an incredible pianist. So mm, come on. Um, so after that, she begins taking private lessons with Vladimir Sokolov, um, who was a professor at Curtis, but she doesn't attend the school. And she can't reapply because at the time, the school wouldn't accept people over 21. So she would have been too old. By the oh, time. that's a bummer. Yeah. Um, that's not the first bummer we're going to talk about. Well, or that's only the first bummer we're going to talk about, I should say. <laughs> Certainly, yes. Um, so she takes a job as a photographer's assistant. She works as an accompanist um, at, like, vocal studios um, and teaches piano lessons from her home. Um, and then she takes, like, a summer job in Atlantic City in 1954. Um and she's trying to help fund her private lessons and also just, you know, make money. Yeah. Um, and she starts performing at Midtown Bar and Grill in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And the owner there basically says, um, you know, it's great that you come in and play piano, but you're going to make more money if you also sing. Mm-hmm. Like, we can pay you more if you're a, a singing act. So she's, like, never been a singer before, but she's like, well, um, they're going to give me $90 a week, and that's more money than I could ever hope for. So she... (laughs) So I will do that. Thank you. Yeah. So she starts singing. And by this point, she's, like, incorporating some jazz and stuff into her, like, you know, her sets. Right. Um, So she starts... This is where she starts performing under the name Nina Simone. Um, So we will refer to her as that from now on. Um, she creates the name from a nickname that, a like, boyfriend, an old boyfriend used to call her, used to call her Nina, like, little one, Nina. Mm. Um, and then Simone came from, uh, the French actress Simone Signore, I don't know how to say her name, I'm sorry. Um, and she started using a stage name because she didn't want her very conservative parents to know that she was playing the devil's music in clubs sure 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 so in 1958 she meets this man named don ross who is a beatnik and who also works as a fairground barker which is like (laughs) what (laughs) like i know logically that that's a real job that people did (laughs) because where else would we get all the like stereotypes of fairground Mm -hmm. barkers if it wasn't a real thing that people did but you don't think about how that was a real thing that people did (laughs) yeah yeah and you don't think about like i just met this guy he's a fairground barker you know (laughs) like what but they are not together for long they divorce after about a year oh wow um and in that same year she records um, George Gershwin's I Loves You, Porgy, which is a song from Porgy and Bess, which she had learned from a Billie Holiday album. Hmm. Um, and it became like a huge hit. Wow. 
So in the documentary, they show a, they play a clip from like an interview where she says something like, you know, it was, we recorded an album and it wasn't meant to be like pushed as the single. It's just that the public kind of picked it out. Right. And it ends up being like her only Billboard top 20 success in the U.S. Wow. And then in 1959, uh, this was just an interesting fact. She plays at the Playboy penthouse. Oh, I'm sure her parents would have hated that. (laughs) Yeah. There's video of it in the dock. Uh um, If you want to see it, it's really like Hugh Hefner is so young and he like introduces her and then she plays this song. Right. Um. Uh, the same year, in February of 1959, that's when she releases her debut album called Little Girl Blue, and it's on Bethlehem Records. Um, I found this interesting. So she had sold her rights to the record company outright for like $3,000. Yeah, that sounds, that happens. Yeah. And she ended up losing over a million dollars in royalties. Yeah. And also, because the... One of the songs that she had, like, sold away called My Baby Just Cares For Me was re-released in the 80s. She also lost money because of that and didn't really benefit financially from her first album sales. That is that is classic. Record company exploits very talented person. Yeah, especially on, like, your first album. Like, uh-huh. you don't really know. and And she's, you know, a young black woman who doesn't have, like... A lot of people in the industry willing to help her, I'm certain. Right. You know, she so. just was probably in the mindset of, I will take who will take me because probably a lot of people didn't. Well, and also it was like never really her intention to become like a recording artist. Right. She she always said that her biggest um, like goal in life was to become the first, you know, the most famous black female classical pianist that's what she wanted so you know she would start incorporating the jazz because that's what people wanted to hear but that wasn't her that's not what she set out for which is wild because her voice is so suited for it Mm -hmm. um but we'll get back to that at some point i'm sure um so after that debacle she signs with a new company called colpix records and they give her the creative control oh that's good yeah, um, and they let her choose, like, the t- material that will be recorded, um, and it's basically in exchange for her signing the contract with them. That's how they they get her, as right. they say. You can have control. Um, 1959, she releases her live album, Nina Simone at Town Hall, um, and then she starts performing regularly in, like, Greenwich Village. Mm. Um and again, she's really only playing like popular music to make money because um, she wants to keep studying, you know, classical music. Mm-hmm. And she's pretty indifferent towards the music industry, like in general. And she kind of maintains that attitude um, throughout her whole life. That's <clears throat> good because it's rough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it doesn't necessarily like help her to have that attitude i'm not saying it hurts her it's just like i don't know there's so much that happens in her life Mm -hmm. i will get to it um in 1960 she plays at the newport jazz festival again there's footage of the documentary it's beautiful she's like sitting on a stool playing a tambourine it's fabulous (laughs) um and then in december of 1961 nina marries a man named andrew stroud he's a new york 
police detective. He eventually becomes her manager. He retires from the police department and becomes her manager. Mm-hmm. They buy a house in Mount Vernon, New York. They have one child together, Lisa Celeste Stroud, who who now goes by Lisa Simone or Lisa Simone Kelly, which is her married name. Mm. So she's also very interesting. She's like a Broadway performer. She's amazing. Nice. Um, but it's like not great because Stroud is like very physically and sexually abusive. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a New York cop, so yeah. Um, fair enough. That. Fair enough. Um. Uh, the song, I Put a Spell on You, which we all know, let's mm-hmm. be honest, but probably not Nina's original recording. We know the one from Hocus Pocus. <laughs> let's be real. Um, which is also fabulous. But um, the song was originally written basically about the abuse that she suffered mm. under under Andy Stroud. Um, and her daughter, Lisa, says, like, in the documentary, she she's like, I think she said, I think they were both crazy, is how she put it. And she said, this is a direct quote. She said that her mother had a love affair with fire. Ugh. Like, she was interested in, like, violence. Right. And so it was like, she obviously didn't like the abuse, clearly. Abuse is abuse. Um, right. But she was also not well that's right. just a fact that we'll loop back to. Um, and she, you know, was sh- abusive in her own right. Not necessarily to her husband. I think, you know, probably there was some going on there. Like, she would fight back. But, you know, we'll we'll come back to that a little bit later. But, um, yeah, there was, like, an incident where she went to a club with her husband one night. And a male fan came up to her and, like, handed her a note or something. She stuck it in her pocket. And he saw it. And he didn't like it. And he took her outside and beat her up. Ugh. Um, yeah. It was bad. Very bad. Um, yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's going to be kind of in the rest. Yeah. For, a lot of the rest while. of what we talk yeah. about. So, it'll be kind of woven in here and there. But, um. In 1963, on April 12th, Simone headlines at Carnegie Hall. Oh, incredible. And she, she, her ambition was to be the first black female classical pianist to play Carnegie Hall. Oh, um, that's amazing. She, she had played there before, like with other people, but this was her first time headlining. headlining. Mm-hmm. Um, the promoters in New York wouldn't, they refused to promote the show. Shocking. So her husband actually uses his own money to promote it. Um, And it's well attended and obviously a pretty big success for her. She recorded a a live album live at Carnegie Hall, you know, whole thing. Right. But her 1963 solo debut at the hall, I got this from Carnegie Hall's website. Um, It says it coincidentally took place on the same day that Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested and jailed. With a group of protesters in Birmingham. Huh. And in 1963 was the same year that Simone had started um, writing protest songs, which were spurred on by, like, the March on Washington. Right. Um, And she, like, started playing them for this show. And that really becomes, like, her career after that. That is fascinating. 
that that was the I same know. day that he w- was arrested in Birmingham. Huh. Mm-hmm. That's one of those small world things, you know? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll let's continue the conversation. <laughs> so, in 1964, she switches to a new record company. She signs with a Dutch label called Philips Records. And her debut album for them is Nina Simone in Concert. And includes the song Mississippi Goddamn, which is probably her most famous song now. Um, But ultimately, and she would say later that it ultimately like hurt her career because it was so explicitly, um, you know, a protest song. Critical. Right. So it was really something she wrote in response to the murder of Medgar Evers in June of 1963, as well as the September 15th, 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, which, you know, killed four young black girls and partially blinded a fifth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I just, if you've never heard it, you have to listen to it and you have to listen to it several times because it's like to, when I hear it anyway, it just sounds like all the things that everybody in that movement wanted to say, but hadn't said yet because they were trying to be more politically careful. No, I or... just because they, yeah, well, careful is a good word. Like they just, it was hard to express. Mm hmm. It was hard to express it, I think. I mean, I can't I can't say I wasn't there. I didn't experience it. Right. But that's what it sounds like to me. Um, and it's very specific that, like, she, she basically, she doesn't say exactly, but it's like, you know, it, we have to change it now. We have to change it now because we're dying. Right. Like, this cannot be gradual. It has to change now. That is basically the attitude of the song. It's obviously boycotted in most of the southern states. <laughs> right. And her daughter says that they would send back the records cracked in two. Oh, my God. And refuse to play it. Right. Um, But it's so good. Oh, man. It's so good, you guys. Um, On the same album, she writes... She uh, records the song Old Jim Crow. Obvious what that's about. <laughs> yes. Um, but after she releases Mississippi Goddamn, it's like this is her message now. She, she Almost all of her recordings are protest songs at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, she's becoming more politically active. And her releases of music and her album sales go down because of that. Right. Um, but she does perform at a lot of civil rights meetings, including the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965. She performs Mississippi Goddamn there. And this was a quote that her daughter Lisa gave in the documentary that I thought was interesting. She said, my mother said that after she sang that song, she got so angry that her voice broke. And from Mississippi Goddamn on, it never, ever returned to its former octave. Huh. That's interesting. Interesting. And probably true. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Like, I just can't imagine, like, performing that song in that setting and not being, like, in some way kind of broken about it. Right. You know. Um, She is Malcolm X's neighbor in Mount Vernon. Huh. 
That's interesting. And she, she is much more in his camp when it comes to how to handle race in America. She supports black nationalism. She advocates for violent revolution rather than nonviolence. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I, I think it was in the doc, somebody said that she once walked right up to Martin Luther King Jr. and said, I'm not nonviolent. And he said, well, it's okay. You don't have to be. <laughs> Which I liked. I'm not nonviolent. I'm not nonviolent. Uh, which is like, fair enough, you know. So in 1967, we switch record labels again. And now she is with RCA Victor. Um, on her first album for them called Nina Simone Sings the Blues, she sings a song called Backlash Blues, which is also a really good song. Um, written by her friend and coincidentally one of my favorite poets, um, Langston Hughes. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. And again, I keep referencing the doc because it's so good, you guys. <laughs> they Somebody in the doc was talking about she, you know, she would make friends with like the writers of this time because they had sort of the intellectual capabilities and she had the music she had the tool to like get it out to convey that in a in a different way yeah so it's like important to her to work with you know influential writers Mm -hmm. of to make sure that their words and their thoughts were heard in different ways yeah and in fact she um took the unfinished play by lorraine hansberry who's a friend of hers and who's also the playwright who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. Mm. Um, and who also, I think, is Lisa Simone's godmother. Huh. Um, if I remember that correctly. I put it in my notes, but I can't. I'm not sure if I heard it correctly. Um, anyway, so she took that play and turned it into a song of the same name. So this was like a pretty standard for her to take the words of writers and turn them into music to get the message out there Mm -hmm. um she recorded an album in 1968 called enough said which had live recordings from the westbury music fair um which took place on april 7th 1968 which was three days after the assassination of martin luther king jr Mm. she dedicated the performance to him and sang a song called why in parentheses the king of love is dead which oh. was written by her bass player, Gene Taylor. It's beautiful. Oh, brutal. <laughs> yeah, I want to cry just thinking about yeah, the song because yeah. it's such a beautiful song. Um, so you can see at this point that her performances are leading, like, very political. Yeah. Um, and she would get on stage and, like, I mean, basically preach I mean, as part of her performance and she sure you know, go i mean she was the daughter of two preachers fair enough but she would yeah that's true but she would like i don't know how to describe it like the, again there's footage in the doc you just kind of have to see it she she was very outspoken about her attitude of not being nonviolent. right she would get on stage and and say it mm-hmm. like i think we should have weapons and if it you know, if it were, are you have to be ready, right? You know, um, and this obviously made it very difficult for her to get commercial bookings, right? Um, her- but also, it's like at that point, being a a black performer who has that viewpoint, like 
I don't, I, I don't think she would want commercial bookings. Well, here's the thing. So her husband said in an interview that she would get very, um, like, she would see success of other black singers like Aretha Franklin and be like, well, I should book like that. Like, mm. I want to have that success. But she also, like, could not give up the what political activism yeah. because it was so right to her. Right. And, you know, she, so she did want the commercial success. But she also, like, was not willing to to give up. To not say what she needed to say. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it was unfair that she couldn't have both. Because totally. she should have. Yeah. By the late 60s, um, her... It's clear that her mental state is declining. Mm-hmm. She's very emotionally distressed. She's depressed. She gets really violent and she can become really erratic um and she said in like interviews she just felt really pressured and you know kind of trapped um there was a story about her she went on tour with oh god i really don't want to use his name but i will because it's a fact bill cosby (laughs) um this was before we knew um (laughs) she went on like a tour with him and she was she like had this kind of fit before she was supposed to go out on stage and she was like she, behaving really erratically and her husband basically had to like walk her out to the piano sit her down go off into the wings and like prompt her and like pantomime what she was supposed to be doing and she just like watched him and just performed. did it yeah so she was not doing well right um in September of 1970, she decides she's leaving. She goes to Barbados. Um, she doesn't quit officially. And she doesn't, like, say she's leaving her husband. But she leaves her ring behind, mm. you know. Um, and he takes this as an indication that she wants a divorce. And also, as her manager, he's in charge of all of her money. (sighs) So when she returns to the U.S., she finds that a warrant has been issued for her arrest for unpaid taxes, which she didn't pay as a protest um, against the Vietnam War. I mean, which is like fair fair enough. enough. (laughs) Um, So she returns to Barbados basically to evade arrest. I mean, fair yeah i'm not gonna fault her on this one i really understand a little bit yeah um she stays there for a while uh apparently she has a quote lengthy affair with the prime minister (laughs) errol barrow and then eventually she decides after speaking with a friend that she wants to live in africa sure her friend decides that she should live in liberia so she gets a divorce she moves to Liberia. Um, she's very happy there. However, she has abandoned her daughter oh. um, and leaves her behind in Mount Vernon. Oh. And her daughter says that she was, like, staying with, um, you know, some other folks. I, I can't remember if it was family or, like, friends of the family. Mm-hmm. And she said she just came back to the house one day and, like, her dad wasn't there. Everyone was gone. Oh, like she had been, girl. she had been staying with them. Like she, she knew her mother was gone, but she like came back to the house and they were just, everything was gone. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. 
Um, eventually, she joins her mom in Liberia. Her Nina Simone uh, brings her daughter to Liberia when her daughter's in like seventh grade ish. Oh wow, I didn't realize she was that young at this point. Yeah, we've just been talking about her on and off for a while, and I didn't realize that she wasn't that old at this point. Yeah, well, we've been referencing things she said as an adult. An adult, so yeah. <laughs> it's kind of hard to keep track. Um, she, so she goes to live with her there, and she says that things just, like, changed very much um, mm-hmm. between her and her mother. She said, again, this is a quote from her from the documentary. She went from being my comfort to the monster in my life. Now she was the person doing the beating, and she was beating me. Oh. Um... And she said that she became very depressed and wanted to end her own life. Mm -hmm. And so when she was around 14, she decided to move back to New York and she stayed with her father Mm -hmm. um, when she came back. So that's really sad. It's really sad. Um, For a lot of reasons. Yeah. Well, it's sad for her, obviously, but then it's also like, well, her mom just had so many unresolved mental health issues, and that's mm-hmm. terrible, and like, oh, gosh, it's just bad. It's all very sad. Yeah. And then she had to go live with her father, who, who was also knew. an abusive person. Like She knew he abused her mother. She saw it happen, but where else was she going to go? Yeah. You oh, know? man. So. Um... So Nina Simone records her last album for RCA called It Is Finished in 1974. And she doesn't make another record until 1978 um, when she's persuaded to go back into the studio by um, someone from a different record company, CTI Records. Um, She kind of has a little bit of a resurgence in the 80s. Um, She... Starts performing at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London. She records a live album there called Live at Ronnie Scott's in 1984. Um, And she kind of hops around during the 80s. She lives in Liberia for a while, in Barbados, and Switzerland. Um, She lives in Switzerland for a good amount of time, actually. Um, And eventually she ends up in Paris. Um, And she performs regularly at a little jazz club there called Au Trois Maillet. Um, for not a ton of money, but, like, enough for her to live on. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of those performances, she, like, some of them she would be too drunk to play the piano, mm. or she would, like, yell at and berate the audience. Um, she, her, she just was behaving in a way that was, like, it's so clear there's a problem. Right. Um, and around that time, her then manager, who's no longer her ex-husband, um, Raymond Gonzalez, um, her guitarist, and then another friend of hers decide to intervene. That's good. Cause she clearly um, needed help. <laughs> at, like at this point. Oh, yeah. So in 1988, they move her to the Netherlands. Mm. She, she moves to a town called, I'm, I'm definitely going to pronounce it wrong. Um, Nijmegen, 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 I'm not sure. Um, she gets a little apartment there with the help of her friend. Um, and he lives close by, so he kind of cares for her. Um, a daily caretaker 
named Jackie Hammond from London uh, is hired to come in and check on her every day. Um, but she was still having like really bad outbursts and she was very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is when she finally gets diagnosed by a friend of her friend with bipolar disorder. Mm. And she's prescribed a medication um, that I think people didn't know that she was on medication until like after her death. Hmm. Um, but, or maybe they just didn't know what kind she was on. I can't remember exactly. But she's, she started doing better in terms of like her, her behavior after that. Like she was less, um, like distressed. Mm-hmm. But it, it does like, kind of affect her motor skills so when they prescribe it to her they're like listen she's not gonna she's probably not gonna talk as much and she's not gonna play the piano quite as well because she she's not gonna be able to move her Her hands hands the same as efficiently right yeah um so she'd still perform um her friends that cared for her in the netherlands basically like made a deal with her like you you can still perform but like we are gonna book your performances you're gonna take your medication like you're gonna you're basically gonna follow the rules to keep you safe right right and she agreed to that so she you know she lived um in the netherlands for a while she moves to amsterdam in 1991 um and in 1993 she ends up settling in southern france um and that same year is when her final album, A Single Woman, is released. Um, she, I read this quote because I just like it. <laughs> she variously contended that she married or had a love affair with a Tunisian around this time, but that their relationship ended because his family didn't want him to move to France and France didn't want him because he's a North African. Oh, my God. Um just like all right it just felt very like specific it is very specific um so she starts kind of in the 90s she she starts traveling again and performing in other places um and she uh during a 1998 performance in newark she announces quote if you're going to come see me again you've got to come to france because i'm not coming back fair enough but she still was like a genius performer like um, one of the people in the documentary was talking about in one of her performances, she started playing one song, but then singing another on top of it. Huh. Which is like, how, like, what kind of musical mind? Do you have to be able to, like, focus on both of those things and make it sound right? And like, yeah. And like, people who played with her, she's, she would like, change the key halfway through a song. Right. Because it was all about, like, how she was feeling in the moment. She would just do whatever she felt. Mm-hmm. And so if you were playing, like, bass with her and she changed the key, you just have to keep up. Like, <laughs> she was that kind of performer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that jazz influence. It's all about the notes well, you don't play. I think play. it's just, she said something like, uh, yeah, it's all about the notes you don't play. She said something um, in one of the interviews that sampled in the documentary where she said, um, you know, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something like, I would just play and sing whatever 
was coming to me in that moment, basically. So she said, sometimes I sound like, I think she said, sometimes I sound like gravel and sometimes I sound like coffee and cream huh. or something like that. I can't remember the exact phrasing she used, but I was like, that's so interesting. I mostly just meant that like jazz has a history of improv performance and like sure. knowing. And so like having that history and also having like band members that have that history who are able to keep up with you because they know how to play jazz is like that's true essential to to being able to do that stylistically they were without equipped. it sounding terrible you know like yeah yes totally um so nina simone suffers from bre- breast cancer for many years and she dies in her sleep at her home um in france on April 21st, 2003, at the age of 70. Um, her ashes are scattered in several African countries. Huh. Which I found interesting. That's very interesting. Um, she was the recipient of the Grammy Hall of Fame Award in the year 2000 for her interpretation of I Love You, Porgy. Mm. Um, she received two honorary degrees in music and humanities from Amherst College and Malcolm X College. And I liked this, too. She preferred to be called Dr. Nina Simone after those honors were bestowed upon her. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. She was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2018. Um, and in 2019, Mississippi Goddamn was selected by the Li- Library of Congress um, for preservation in the National Recording Registry for being, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. And two days before her death, she was awarded an honorary degree by the Curtis Institute of Music, which was the school that had rejected her when she was 19. Oh, that's a very... It's, like, sad, but also, like... Rounded, you know? Gotcha! (laughs) You know? Yeah. So, she was a fascinating character. Yeah, wow. Um, and her activism was so interesting Mm -hmm. because, you know, there are a lot of activist musicians during the civil rights movement, obviously, but I don't know, just something about the way that she expressed her anger and sadness and Mm -hmm. desire for things to be different was really fascinating. And she was a musical genius. Right. I mean, a genius. I mean, she was clearly a a child prodigy, right? She started playing at like three, you know, that. Yeah. People's minds are just built different like that. Yeah. (laughs) And it just, you know, she had so many things that like, if we had known how to care for someone like her, like how different would her life have been? Yeah. Because she had an amazing career. Like, her career outlives her as much as it was kind of damaged while she was alive because of how society treated the stuff that she was singing about. Right. You know, we're still talking about her and her music outlives her. She had an amazing career. And I don't think, like, you know, with some people who had mental health issues, it's like, wow, what could they have produced if we could have taken care of them? Mm -hmm. I mean, we think think about that with Van Gogh all the time. Yeah. Or, like... Amy Winehouse. Yeah. You know, but like with her, I think it's more like, wow, how much happier could she have been in her life? How much because she more could she so, have enjoyed her success? She and was so unhappy. Devoted herself to her activism 
in different yeah. ways had she been healthier. Well, and her, I think it was her niece in the documentary says something like, you know, when you were political, when you're a political activist, like the rest of your life suffers. Yeah. Because you're so emotionally, mentally drained and all of your energy just goes into that. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, the truth is that it adds value to your life because you're doing something important. But when you're living it, it makes it difficult. Yes. So I just, if she also, I mean, and then she's also suffering from bipolar disorder, doesn't know it because she hasn't been diagnosed for most of her life. And it's also in an abusive relationship. Like. Right. I just, I can't imagine how much, how much less miserable she could have been. Yeah. You know, but highly, highly recommend if maybe you're not. Maybe you're listening to this and you're not American, or maybe you are American and like us, you grew up in a school where you weren't taught anything about black history <laughs> yes. for the most part. Yes. Um, you should listen to her music and you should definitely watch the documentary. It's very good. Um, yeah. That's Nina Simone. Oh, she was fascinating. Fascinating mm-hmm. woman. Good Epsis. Thanks. Yeah, I went back and forth a little bit about like what I wanted to do, but then you did a woman and I was like, I should also do a woman. It's yes. going to be Women's Black History Month for us on this podcast. Yes. So, As if we don't all already just talk about fascinating women all the time, lo- never-endingly. Yes. It's what we that's do. That's true. <laughs> true enough. So that's our, our last ep of Black History Month because, oh my gosh, next time it's going to be March. Oh, God. <laughs> that's <Wow>. wild. <laughs> Um, so don't know what's going to happen next time around. No clue. We'll see. <laughs> we will see. Um, so listeners, if you have suggestions or if you have questions or comments, et cetera, et cetera, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at RTTpod. We're also on Facebook if you just search the name of the podcast. Um, if you want to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would be fabulous. Um, and if you want to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. Awesome. Speaking of Nerdfighters, um, by the time you are listening to this, the live stream will be over, but it is Project for Awesome season. Um, we always talk about Project for Awesome on this podcast because we believe very strongly in the work that the Green Brothers do uh, through the Project for Awesome. Um, the li- By the time you're hearing this, like I said, the live stream will be over, but I assume the um, donation website will still be running. They usually run let that run for about a week after. Um, yes, I think that it will be up until... Wednesday? Awesome. Maybe, but I'm not positive on that, so don't quote me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um but if you want to go I could find it. Check that out um and participate and donate some money to charity and find some cool perks and interesting stuff. Um Yeah, you can go to projectforawesome.com slash donate and it will take you to the website that they're using to raise the money. Um there are, like, it, it's different from in the past. Um, they're using a new site. So if you've done it before, it's going to look a little bit different. When you go to the fundraising website, if you want to select, like, a perk, 
quote unquote, or a reward for the money that you're donating, there's a little thing on the top with like a star that says rewards. It's right above the video that tells you about the project. So that's where you'll find that. Um, if you just want to give, there's a separate button that says donate or support campaign. So that's what you need to know about that. And I am double checking. It's going to be open until... Uh, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday the 16th. So the day that you're listening to this, you have like one more day basically yeah. to donate if you would like. Yeah. But we always like to um, bring that up when it's happening and and I didn't want to miss it this year, even though the live stream will be over by the time you're hearing this. So uh, go participate. Project for Awesome is the greatest. Projectforawesome.com slash donate. Yeah. Yes, thank you all for listening. Um, again, I don't know what it's going to be next time. Not That's on Amanda. Yep. <laughs> um, so, you know, until next time. Remember that time. Yeah.